You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. This week, we're joined by Dr. Tate Cockrell. Dr. Tate steps up to the podium to walk us through Deuteronomy chapter 6. In this chapter, we get to see just how the Bible defines families and how parents should be walking with their children in their early stages of faith. We want to say thank you again to Dr. Tate for leading us this week, and thank you for checking out this week's sermon podcast. Good morning, Broadmore family. That was weak. Good morning, Broadmore family. The last thing that Wendy said to me before I got up here was, just please don't cry. I have so many things. I can't do it. I wish I could. I can't. Um, I have so many things I want to tell you, but let me just, what I'm going to try to do is I'm just going to try to do it really quickly, and then maybe that way I just won't get emotional. Let me just update you on where we are. Some of you don't know me. You never met me. This won't be important to you, but there are a lot of you in the room. By the way, by a show of hands, how many of you have been at Broadmoor since I was here many years ago? Okay, great. So this will be an update for at least a few of you. So Wendy and I live in Wake Forest, North Carolina, where uh, I serve as the director of the EDD and DMIN programs uh, at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, We have opportunities to travel to about 30 or 35 churches every single year, in addition to that, leading marriage conferences and parenting conferences, and so God's really continued to bless our ministry. What most of you would be probably most interested in would be the update on our children. Uh, Our daughter Tatum is married, uh, no grandkids yet, but we keep holding out and pushing hard for that. Uh, but she's been married now for almost four years. And our twins, Preston and Spencer, this will blow most of you away. Our twins turned 20 today. They turned 20 today. So happy birthday, boys. I told them that if they watched this morning, that I would give them a shout out. So happy birthday to Preston and Spencer this morning as they, as they turned 20. Um, also, just by way of a hello, uh, Dr. Jim Shaddix and I are accountability partners. We meet together every week, and we're in small group together in the church that we attend together. He wanted me to, of course, uh, extend a very warm hello to you, wanted me to be sure that, uh, that I did that. Um, I, honestly, there are a hundred other things that I wish that I could say to you this morning. If I did, I would be a blubbering idiot by the time I got to the end of it. So I'm just not going to do it. We're just going to jump into the Word, and I'm just going to trust that you know the absolute deep, and I, and I, do, mean, whew, I do mean deep love that we have for this place. It is a deep and abiding love that we have for all of you. Take your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just going to push right through it, sweetheart, I promise. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you don't know where that is, it's in the front part of your Bible. Uh, It is uh, the fifth book of the Bible, so if you'll join me there in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In preparation for this morning's sermon, I spent several hours looking at some statistics related to the percentage of young adults who adopt and maintain the faith of their parents. And I also looked at the percentage of people who are leaving Christianity versus those who are converting to Christianity. And quite honestly, the numbers, they're pretty depressing. Depending upon which study you look at, roughly 60 to 70 percent of college age or young adults abandon their faith after they leave home. 60 to 70 percent abandon their faith 
after they leave home. The Pew Research Institute estimates that between 2015 and 2050, 106 million Christians will abandon their faith, while only adding 40 million to the Christian faith during that same time frame. If you can do some quick math, that's a net loss of 66 million people between now and 2050. This downward trend away from Christianity is having dire consequences on our families as well. Family unhealth, pathology, and dysfunction are on the rise. If you do the work that I do and Preston does, then you know that that our world today is putting the fun in the word dysfunction. Families are not getting healthier, they're getting more unhealthy. In fact, Harvard sociologist Carl Zimmerman who has studied the fall of every major civilization, in his research, he's discovered that the decline of the family has been a major contributor to the fall of every major civilization. In his book, Family and Civilization, Zimmerman notes that a civilization's downfall occurs in three stages. And in that last stage, in that that third stage, right before civilization falls, Zimmerman describes the family, and here's how he describes the family. He says, these eight things are the commonalities in a family right before a civilization crumbles and falls. Number one, marriage lost its sacredness, and it was frequently broken by divorce. Number two, traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony was lost, and alternate, alternate forms and definitions of marriage arose, and the traditional marriage vows were replaced by individual marriage contracts. Third, feminist movements appeared, and women lost their interest in childbearing and mothering, preferring instead to pursue power and influence. Number four, public disrespect for parents and authority in general increases. Number five, juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion accelerates. Number six, people with traditional marriages refuse to accept family responsibilities. Number seven, desire for and acceptance of adultery grew. Number eight, an increased tolerance for sexual perversions of all kinds with a resultant increase in sex-related crimes. Do these eight things shock you as you look at the culture around us today? As you evaluate the state of our country and our world Does it give you a moment of pause as you think about how families look today? Would it shock you to learn that Zimmerman's book was not written as a reflection of contemporary American family? Rather, his book, Family and Civilization, was written in 1947. 1947, he made those observations. Long before divorce rates were so high, long before no-fault divorces were even permissible, decades before same-sex marriage was lawful, decades before a permissive sexual ethic was celebrated, decades before Me Too and Church Too or other mainstream discussions about the pervasiveness of abuse, decades before people even knew what cohabitating meant. In the golden era of family, just prior to shows like Ozzy and Harriet and Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver were born, Zimmerman was sounding the alarm of the perils of the eventual breakdown of the family, especially the Christian family. God's Word has something to say about that. So this morning, I want to draw your attention to Deuteronomy 6, and I want to look at the idea of what does it mean to have generational faith 
so that your children and my children wouldn't be part of that statistic that when they get out of our homes, rather than embracing our faith, they abandon our faith. Here's what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 25 say. Join me in God's Word. This is the command. The statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land that you're about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands. I am giving you your son and your grandson and so that you may have long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. The gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. Do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massah. Carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and the statutes that he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper and so that you may enter and possess the good land that the Lord your God swore to give your ancestors by driving out all your enemies before you, as the Lord has said. And when your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees, the statutes, and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Before our eyes, the Lord inflicted great and devastating signs and wonders on Egypt, on Pharaoh, and on all his household. But he brought us from there in order to lead us in and give us the land that he swore to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our prosperity always and for our preservation as it is today. Righteousness will be ours if we're careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So let's look at a context for where we are in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the, the final book of the Pentateuch, the, the law. It's written around 1406 B.C., presumably by Moses. The word Deuteronomy means second law or repeated law. Deuteros, second. Namion, law. But you have to be careful to understand that this is not a second law as in there was one law and now another law is coming. It's a recap or a repeating of the original law. Deuteronomy is basically a series of sermons preached by, preached by Moses shortly before he dies as the Israelites are about to go into the promised land of Canaan. Moses is 120 years old. 
And he gives this series of sermons or speeches to the Israelites, and he's talking to people who most of them weren't even old enough to remember when Moses had received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Most of their parents have died while they're in the wilderness. The first sermon here is basically a history of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt and their failure to go into the promised land when the Lord had commanded them. The sermon's meant to encourage the children of Israel to obey the Lord and to constantly reassure them of God's faithfulness and power in their lives. Deuteronomy 6.5 contains the thesis of the entire book of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Moses had seen the children of Israel go through all of these wild swings. He had seen them trust the Lord, trust in his deliverance, follow him in obedience, have faith in the Lord as they crossed the Red Sea into freedom from the Egyptians. He had seen God feed and protect the Israelites as they wandered around without being allowed to enter into the land of milk and honey. And yet he also saw their rebellion as they questioned God's methods of deliverance out of Egypt, as they worshipped a golden calf, as they hesitated in fear at conquering the land that God had before them. And now, at the end of Moses' life, he so badly wants the Israelites to obey the Lord and experience all the blessings that God has in store for them. So here, at the end of his life, Moses lays out for them the expectations that God has for them as his chosen people. An expectation that is a continuation of the law that Yahweh had given Moses on Mount Sinai. This morning, I want to share with you five simple truths, five simple truths about families of generational faith. Now, most of these are not going to rock your world. They're not going to be new. But like the repeated or second law of Deuteronomy, they will be good reminders for us that if we want to pass on faith to the next generation, certain things are going to have to happen. Number one, obey God completely. Obey God completely. Here's what Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3 says. This is the command, the statutes and the ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them into the land that you're about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands. I'm giving you and your son and your grandson and so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Over and over again in this text, you hear Moses' admonition to the Israelites to obey. Over and over again, in fact, 15 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone, the children of Israel are admonished to obey all that God has said to them. Well, what exactly are they supposed to obey? Well, the first thing are the explicit laws or the instructions given to Moses on Mount Sinai. All of the statutes or all of the ordinances basically revolved around the the written word that Moses had kind of chiseled into those stones uh, that we see pictures of in our children's Bible. It was basically those very specific Ten Commands. But not just that, God had not only spoken to them explicitly in the commands, but beyond the Ten Commandments was this overriding, all-important instruction that they were to follow. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
The Lord is one. These are the opening words of what the Jews call the Shema. They're the words that every Orthodox Jew for all of human history, since these words were spoken and penned, every Jew knows these words. And they repeat them every day in their homes, in their workplaces, in their synagogues, every day and in every place and in every way, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses is admonishing them, listen, despite the fact that the Canaanites around you, despite the fact that there are all of these other peoples around you who are polytheistic, they are going to worship multiple gods. For us, there is one God and it is Yahweh. So Moses is reminding them and us, there's one God, one God worthy of our worship, one God worthy of our surrender, one God worthy of our hope, and one God worthy of our life. And notice that they stand on the edge of blessing if they will obey that word. Notice how Moses is reminding the Israelites that once again, they're at this point where they can choose to have faith and they can follow God in obedience, or they can choose to abandon their faith and shrink back once again. Here they are with an opportunity to go into the promised land. They've been here before, remember? And Moses remembers what it was like the first time. He's reminding them that they had an opportunity to go in, and yet because of their disobedience, they did not. And as a result of that, not only did they not go in on that day, they didn't go in on the day after, the day after, the day after. And for 40 years, they weren't allowed to go into the land of the promise because of their disobedience. And notice also that their obedience not only brings about this blessing, but it brings about a blessing that is bountiful He says that you may have a long life and that you may prosper and multiply greatly and that you would enter into a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice here Moses is showing them the incredible blessing that lays before them. Long life, they could prosper and multiply greatly. Promised land of milk, which was uh, kind of uh, uh, synonymous with the very sustenance of life and the provision of bare necessities and the land of honey, the sweet nectar of the fruits. It was signif- signified that they wouldn't just get the bare necessities, but they would get the blessings of the dessert as well. Like this is going to be a great life that they have laid out before them. But all of it hinges on their obedience. And my dear friends, if the next generation is going to have the faith that we have, they have to see completely surrendered obedience to a God who is worthy of our obedience. But notice not only that we should obey God completely, but that we should love God supremely. That we should love God supremely. That's where it says in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Hey, I'd like for you to go up to your spouse today. And I'd like for you to look at your spouse, and I'd like for you to command them to love you. Love me. That sounds preposterous to us, right? Because when we think about love we tend to think about love as a noun. We don't tend to think about love as a verb. But here, Moses is telling them, love the Lord your God. 
Love is not some entity that just sort of happens upon us. You know, you fall in love. It just sort of happens to you without you doing anything. We, you know, we were just made for each other, and this emotion of love just visits us. And the problem is, when you think about that love, it can leave you just as fast as it can visit you because you're not in control of that because it's a noun and it's not a verb. And yet here's, the, here's Moses, and he's saying, love the Lord your God. And he says, love the Lord your God in several different ways. He says, first of all, love God with all your heart. Love God with all your heart. Now, most often in the Scriptures, the heart is symbolic of the affections or the emotions or the passions of man. The heart is what drives a man or a woman to do what they do daily. The heart's the center of our passion. So love isn't done out of compulsion or fear or even out of ritual. Rather, it's done out of a deep sense of longing. God has captured our attractions. He has captured our affections. He has captured our wants. We are not allowing other things to captivate us in a way that would rob us of the love that would rightfully be due to God. So he says, love the Lord with all of your heart. But then he says, love the Lord with all of your soul. With all of your soul. Now, most often in the scriptures, the soul is translated life or the totality of life or the totality of our being. So it's not a one-time thing, and it's not just when it's convenient. It's not just every now and then. When we love with our soul, we love with every part of us. Where the heart is the center of our affections and our passions, the soul is the essence of everything that we do. Our deepest, most beliefs and what makes us uniquely us. And Moses is telling the children of Israel, love the Lord with all of your soul, with that part of your being that is the core essence of who you are. Love God with that. And then he says, love the Lord with all of your strength. And the word strength here is translated in a variety of ways in the Old Testament, but almost all of them relate to power, severity, intensity, or completeness. In other words, when Moses states that we are to love God with all of our strength, he's saying that our love should be a love that overwhelms. It should not be tepid or weak or passive. It should be strong and intense and vibrant and hot. Now, interestingly enough, in the New Testament, when Jesus quotes this text of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, he actually says it a little bit differently. In the New Testament, when Jesus quotes this scripture, he says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Not strength. He says mind. And why do we think that is? We think that is because ultimate, we got Jesus knows in this instance, and I think as a counselor, I would certainly echo this, how you think is going to determine what you do. You do what you do because you think the way you think. And so Jesus here says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Moses says all of your strength with this intensity, this vibrancy of passion. So for us to pass on generational faith, 
We have to obey God completely, love God supremely. And third, we have to share God diligently. We have to share God diligently. Here's what Moses says. He says, repeat them, these words, to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. There's a calling here for us to share God diligently. And notice the personal nature of that. He says, talk to your children. Share it in your house. And when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Repeat them to your children. Let your children hear the words of God on your lips proceeding from your mouth. Allow your children to hear, your, hear you read the Word of God. When you're instructing them about life, let it be His Word that governs how you parent and not your words. Listen, I love church. I love youth ministry. I love next-gen ministry, and I love it when the church partners with parents, but the number one discipler of your children should be you. You have a great staff. I love your staff. They are incredibly competent, Jesus-loving, word-proclaiming people. And they will partner with you in the sharing of the gospel with your children. But they are not a substitute for you. And you cannot expect that if you don't share Jesus and you don't share God's word and you don't display obedience to them, you can't expect that your children are going to grow up and adopt a faith that's any different than the faith that you've displayed to them, which is absent. So when they walk away and you say, I can't believe that my children are no longer following Jesus, and, but then you take those two steps back and you say, well, how did I actually share Jesus with them? When is the last time our children heard the phrase from our lips, the Word of God says... The Bible says there is a personal nature to you talking about God, passing on the stories of faithfulness. A few months back, about six months back, we were uh, at home in Wake Forest. My parents had come to see us. And I don't know how it happened, but Tatum and, and her husband Jacob were over and the boys were home. We were all there. It was our whole family. and My parents were there. and I don't know how it happened, but just suddenly out of the blue, my dad started sharing stories of the early years of his life, you know, roughnecking on an oil rig at the age of 17 and then moving his young family at the age of 22 to Aberdeen, Scotland. And, and, and my, my children were enthralled as he told those stories. He, it was just story after story, and they began asking questions. And, and as it was unfolding in front of me, I just thought, what a beautiful moment for my children to be able to see faith being passed on from generation to generation as they heard of God's faithfulness in the life of their grandparents. There's a personal nature to sharing God diligently. But also, there's a persistent nature. There's a persistent nature to sharing God diligently. Notice how he says, when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, it happens not just every now and then. God's Word is not just a part of your Sunday. God's Word is a part of your lifestyle. 
God's words, are, God's words are a part of everything we do. When we're at home sitting around, talk about God and His Word. When you're doing daily activities outside of your home, talk about God and His Word. When you go to bed at night, talk about God and His Word. When you wake up in the morning, talk about God and His Word. There is a persistent nature to us proclaiming the goodness of God to others, especially to our families. That they would see in us a lifestyle that is concerned more with God's perspective than with the world's perspective. That they would see in us a lifestyle that makes more of God than ourselves, more of His wisdom than our own, more of His commands and our desires. That they would hear less, well, my opinion is, and they would hear more, God's Word says. That they would hear us repeat over and over and over again the goodness of God in our lives in the lives of our family, so we obey God completely, we love God supremely, we share God diligently, and next we remember God's grace faithfully. We remember God's grace faithfully. Here's what, here's what Moses says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he would give you a land with large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When you see, Moses says, when you see what God's done in your life, when you see the awesomeness of his provision and his promises, remember that it is his grace that has provided those things, not your hard work. Moses says, listen, you're going to come to this incredible place, large cities, beautiful cities, and guess what? You didn't do that. The Canaanites did that, actually. You didn't build those cities, all those beautiful houses that you're going to move into. You didn't build those houses, all those wells that provide water. You didn't dig those wells. All those luscious vineyards that are going to provide food and wine, you didn't plant those. You're going from a place of slavery and a place of need and a place of malnourishment to a place of plenty and a place of freedom and a place of abundance. And it's all because the Lord brought you here. It is the Lord who made this happen. And my dear friends, get this. This is the truth of the gospel. God doesn't give us what we do deserve, punishment and eternity separated from Him, and He gives us what we don't deserve, life abundant, life eternal, life of meaning and purpose, a life made whole and restored. And we can't forget that. We have to always remember that it is God's goodness and His grace and His mercy and His character that allows us to enjoy the life that we have. And yet so many times what our children hear from us it's just how hard a workers we were whenever we were their age. And we built this. We, we did this. And you ought to follow in our footsteps. And listen, I'm not against hard work. But my dear friends, they need to hear that what we have in our life, it comes from the good hand of a gracious father. Not because of all the hard work that we do. It's easy for us to forget how we actually came to faith in Jesus and how it was all Him. It was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's His grace that saves us and it is His grace that sustains us in life. My dear Broadmoor family, the gospel is a beautiful thing. 
The gospel is a beautiful thing. You can't earn salvation. You can't buy it. You can't work hard enough for it. Your goodness is insufficient to secure it. The gospel is a beautiful thing. Your eternity is not dependent on what you can do. It's dependent on what Christ already did. The work is finished, and it was finished by Jesus on the cross at Calvary. On a cruel Roman cross, Jesus purchased your eternal destiny. My friends, the gospel is a beautiful thing. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to have questions. John wrote, these things have I written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. The gospel is a beautiful thing. We have to remember God's grace faithfully. We have what we have. Salvation, material possessions, a family, children, whatever it is that you have in your life that you are thankful for, you have those things because God has ordained it. And in his goodness and in his graciousness and from the freeness of his hand, he has said, I am going to bless you with this. We have to continuously repeat and remember God's grace. Number five, lastly, enjoy God's blessings continually. Enjoy God's blessings continually. He says, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper and so that you may enter and possess the good land the Lord your God swore to give your ancestors by driving at all the enemies before you as the Lord has said. The Lord commanded us to follow all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God for our prosperity always and for our preservation as it is today. Righteousness will be ours if we are careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. God is faithful in his promises and we will have the opportunity to enjoy blessings continually because God faithfully fulfills his promises to us. Moses is saying, look, don't forget that what you're getting, this is him talking to the Israelites, what you're getting is the fulfillment of a promise. This land that you're getting, it's always been yours because God promised it to your ancestors. He told your ancestors that they would have this land. They were disobedient, so the promise was delayed, but it's always been theirs, and now it's going to be yours, and now God is making good on his promises to you. Remember and repeat God's faithfulness to his promises to his children so that your children can enjoy the same blessings that you would enjoy. Do you know there are over 4,000 promises of God to his people in his word? Promises of salvation and protection, healing and deliverance, wisdom and peace, joy and strength, power, presence, riches, renewal. The list is massive. The promises that he declares to us through his word. It is a bountiful blessing to us that we can trust in the faithfulness of a God who will fulfill every single one of those promises. But we experience that joyful bounty, not just in his promises, but in his provision. God is faithful in his provision to us. He says, Moses says, listen, all this is going to be for your prosperity always and for your preservation. Remember God's faithfulness in meeting your every need. Over and over again, as the word of God tells us, that God will supply our every need if we will but trust 
in him. The Bible is filled with stories of his faithfulness to provide just what is needed in the ways in which we never could have imagined. He provides Adam a perfect helper. He provides a way of escape for Israelites through the Red Sea. He provides food for the people in the wilderness, fish for his disciples while fishing, sight to a blind man, ability to walk to a lame man, healing to a sick girl, freedom to a possessed boy, and most importantly, salvation to you and to me. And not because we earned it or not because we deserve it, but by his good graces and his good hand, he has provided for our every need. So for us to have generational faith, faith passed down to our children and their children and their children's children, we have to obey God completely, love God supremely, share God diligently, remember God's grace faithfully, and enjoy God's blessing continually. Now here's the danger, here's the temptation that we have to avoid. It's easy to hear those numbers that I quoted in, our, in my introduction, about 106 million people leaving the faith. It's easy to hear those numbers, and it's easy to hear about the shifting moral sands of culture with widespread moral relativism and permissive sexual ethics and widening divisions between political parties or a government that seemingly not only doesn't support healthy dynamics in families but seems to be working to weaken families. It's easy to hear all of that and say, something has to change out there. Something has to change in the world, in the culture. Something has to change out there. But we cannot miss the fact that these verses were not written to the pagans. They were not written to the pagans. They were written to God's chosen people. They weren't written to admonish the people out there. They were written to exhort us in here as his children. And not just in here, in this room, but in your family. And not just in your family, but in your heart. We cannot possibly hope to pass on to the next generation what we don't personally possess in our heart as we wait on other people to change and we wait on other things to change and we wait on the culture to be different. My friend, if you're waiting on the culture to be different, I once heard a guy say, we're going to hell in a handbasket. We would have already been there if we hadn't already run out of handbaskets. The culture's not getting any better. The difference starts not out there, but in my heart. In just a minute, the praise team's going to join me on the platform, and they're going to lead us after I pray. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning the Lord has convicted you that you don't know him, that you haven't experienced that grace, that beautiful gospel that I described earlier. Maybe you don't know what that means, and you, you need to talk to somebody. You've never experienced the beauty of the gospel, and you want to know how the gospel can be a reality for you. In our invitation in a few minutes, Josh will be down front. A few other pastors will be here. Come down and take one of them by the hand and just say, I, I, I want to know the gospel. I want to understand it. I want to know how to apply it to my life. I want to become a believer. I want to be a Christ follower. Don't walk out of here and miss the most important thing about that message, and that is that you would know Jesus personally. Not that you would know about him, but that you would know him personally. Or maybe this morning, maybe this morning you realize that you need to be a part of a church home, 
you don't have a church membership anywhere, you're not plugged in to a, a biblical community, and you need to be living alongside other believers for your encouragement. And let me just tell you, as you heard in my opening, I love this church. I love the people in this church. And I don't believe you'll find a more biblically faithful church anywhere around. A church that loves the community and is on mission together. If you want to know what it means to be a member of this church, come and grab a pastor by the hand and talk to them and say, I want to be a member of this church. Or maybe this morning you realize that your family isn't doing as well as it should be in living out the gospel. Maybe you're not doing as good as you should be in living out the gospel in your home and in your community, and you want to come and pray either by yourself or maybe with your family. Maybe take your husband or wife by the hand or your kids. This altar will be open. You can come to the altar and you can pray. You don't have to talk to anybody. Maybe you just want to come and maybe recommit your family to obeying God completely and loving God supremely and sharing God diligently. You want to recommit to doing that? This altar will be open for you. But my dear friend, don't, don't walk out of here and say, wow, that was, that was an okay sermon. Like that, I enjoyed that. That was good. That was, that was good to see Tate again. Don't do that. If God's knocking on your heart and saying, you need to make a decision, you need to decide whether you're going to follow me or you're going to follow the Lord, don't tell yourself, I'll do that later because I promise you, you won't. You feel the conviction now. You make the decision now. God, we are grateful that you have given us the gift of your word, that you gave those laws and those principles and those statutes to Moses on Mount Sinai. And we're grateful that you continue to speak to us through your word and through the presence of your spirit. And God, I pray this morning for every family who's here, God, that you are present in their life. And God, as you are present in their life, that it makes a tangible difference in the way they live. And God, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't try to live this Christian life in their own power. They wouldn't try to obey in their own power or love in their own power. But God, as a result of your presence and your grace in their life, God, that you would transform them. God, that ultimately their families would be wonderful examples of your love for the world. That their family would be a picture of the gospel. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.